And so uh, today we continue our study in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. So take your Bibles and turn there. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, we live in the modern ages of technological marvels. So pull it up on the App Store real quick. You can download a Bible app, get to 1 Corinthians 11, and follow right along with us. And if you don't have time to do that or you don't have data connection, just look on with a friend. I'm sure they'll, they'll share a copy of God's Word with you as well. And also, if you do not have a copy of God's Word... We would love to get a copy into your hands, and so see me after the service, and we can take care of that for you. Well, today we're going to study a very interesting passage. Before I get into the message, let me mention this announcement. Next Sunday, immediately following the morning service, we'll have a follow-up missions trip meeting. We have two missions trips planned for uh, this upcoming year, one to Mongolia and then one to Zambia. And so uh, we had kind of the initial interest meeting, and now we need to get your name on the dotted line, and we need to get a deposit in. And so we'll be talking about that next Sunday, also talking about how you can fundraise for that and how you can make plans and preparations, get your passports and all that fun stuff. How many of you do not think it would be a good idea to get locked up overseas because you didn't have your passport? Of course, they wouldn't even let you out of the city. Uh, of course, they wouldn't even let you out of the city, but I guess there was a show on uh, years ago called Locked Up Abroad, and that was always, I guess, one of my fears of getting locked up out of the country. But anyway, thankful to be an American, thankful for the traveling privileges we have, but you got to have your passport, so got to get that, folks. Anyway, so today we're in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16. You can go ahead and take out your worship guide, and there's some blanks there to follow along. And hopefully you'll keep a personal collection of these notes and it'll help you as you go back sometimes and, and deal with these issues. And man, Paul was not afraid to just deal with some rather uh, interesting issues and also some things that sound strange and odd to us. And today's um, passage is one of the most complex or one of the strangest sounding to us. There are other verses in the Bible that are certainly difficult to understand, but this passage is probably one of the lengthiest portions of Scripture where you read it and you're thinking, okay, do you mean this, Paul, to be a practice down through the centuries for every church in every age and every time period and every culture? Or was this something you were saying specifically to the church of Corinth? And so part of our goal, part of my goal as your pastor, is to teach you how to study the Bible, to teach you how to rightly divide the word of truth. And so today we're going to really be hopefully illustrating what that looks like and how we discern between a cultural principle that Paul might have been addressing in the word and a timeless truth. And there's a difference between the two. And, and it's funny how all these messages really do connect in many different ways. Last week, we talked about a lot of difficult topics. This wasn't on the list. It could, I guess, be uh, thought of under the list or under the topic of modesty. But it's funny how even this message today ties back in with the idea of Christian liberty and what we've already been studying over these last several weeks. And so let's read the passage of Scripture together, shall we? And before we read the passage, look at the title of the message. Wear your hat, or another uh, a sermon title could be, Ladies, Cover Your Head, all right? And so, should you this morning have a head covering on, ladies? Is that biblical? Are you, in, uh, are you living in sin because you don't have your head covered? All right, let's read this passage, and we'll try to answer some of those questions. Verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 11. 
Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. So Paul starts out here with a little bit of praise, with a little bit of attaboy to the church of Corinth. He doesn't have a whole lot of attaboy in the letter to the Corinthians. But here's one area where he says, hey, at least you're uh, keeping me in mind and you're remembering the ordinances that I taught you. So he has a, a little bit of a good word here. But, so there's verse 3, but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. So Paul pivots from his short words of encouragement to now he's about to address another issue going on in the city of Corinth, in, in the churches there in the city. And he talks about this principle or this idea of submission in verse 3. He says that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Verse 4. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. Interesting. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. What? How many of you are already like, all right, pastor, I am lost. Paul's talking about women just might as well shave their heads if they don't have a hat on or have a head covering. How many of you are tracking so far? Are you tracking? How many of you are scratching your head with me? You scratch your head with me? Okay, let's keep reading. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn or shaven. Shave her head, shave it all off. But if she be ashamed for but if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. Again, you have to ask yourself, okay, Paul, you're saying it's either or. Either wear a head covering, wear a hat, or shave all your hair off. That's what he's saying. Um Verse 7, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Oh, these are some verses that have gotten pulled out of context and abused and actually used to create abusive situations between men and women. And let me just be very clear, that's not what Paul is espousing here. Paul is not saying that ladies are our, uh, um, uh, our, our tools or, or our objects of um, servitude or abuse. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about a principle from the beginning of time, from creation. He's talking about this submissive, this, uh, this, this idea of a created order. He's not saying that woman is inferior. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of my notes here. We'll, we'll, we'll come back and address this. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judging yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Is that best? Is that ideal? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. Okay? But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. All right. How many of you would just love to teach this for me and I could sit down and have you do it? All right. Yeah. Um, I hope this is going to be a very helpful. I'm, I, I, was, I was telling somebody this week, I, this is one of the most exciting. I mean, I'm excited about every Sunday, but I'm really excited about this message today. 
Some of you are like, I don't see why you're so excited, Pastor. I just read that, and I'm like, I have no idea what we're talking about. So you're saying that we're going to create a rule that every lady has to now wear a hat? Are we going to be like Great, Great Britain? Are we going to wear a hat in every public occasion? Isn't that funny how even to this very day, Great Britain, the ladies practice wearing hats in their culture out in public? Interesting. We'll allude back to that here in a little bit. So what are some keys to understanding this difficult passage that we just read? And, and how many of you uh, grew up in a religious context or you have family that still are in this religious context where when they go to a public worship gathering, all the women cover their head? Raise your hand. It's fine. It's uh, yeah, okay. Um, we actually went to a Christian college. My wife and I were talking about this sermon last night. And she said there were several girls in her dorm when they would go to our worship services on campus, uh, they would put on this little head covering and that they would do that during the worship because that's what their religious customs were. So um, there's a lot of people that take this passage and they're like, yep, we're going to follow this today. But of course, as you look around you, I don't see any lady with a hat on. Now, what's funny is, is growing up in the South, what's the one Sunday service a year where ladies typically wear a hat? Easter, that's right. And so, you know, we're always ready to see who, who, who has their hats on. Now, there's one lady here who wears a hat a lot more often than just Easter, and that's Doris Jones, and she's sitting right down there. But anyway, uh, and Doris, you have some mighty fine hats. But this is a bit strange, isn't it, as we read this passage? Uh, as I mentioned, if you look around the auditorium today, it's hard, hard, you'll be hard-pressed to find a lady with a hat on. Um, and so what's going on here in this passage? Isn't Paul clear that a woman should have... Uh, her head covered in church, verses 5 and 6. Isn't he pretty clear there? And doesn't it seem that short hair for a woman is clearly wrong, verses 14 and 15? And long hair for a man is clearly wrong, verse 4? So these are some questions that we have to take into consideration. And, and, and honestly, if we take the Bible seriously, then we have to deal with this passage because there's going to be people who are going to look at you and say, well, you claim to follow all the Bible, and yet, you're not following this section, because I don't see anybody, any ladies, uh, for that matter, following this section today. So if we take the Bible seriously, which all of us, if we are believers and we claim to follow the Word of God, then we take the Bible seriously. Well, Paul's saying this to the church of Corinth. So how do we make sense of this? Let, let me give you two principles, and these aren't blanks. These are just written on your notes to help you. Maybe you want to circle some of the key words here in these two. So keys to understanding this passage. Number one, keep in mind that every epistle, every New Testament letter in the New Testament was an occasional document. What does that mean? It was written to address situations going on with those churches, with those church leaders. And so that's clearly what Corinth is about. Paul wrote this epistle because of sin issues that were going on at the church of Corinth, uh, leadership issues, questions that the church of Corinth had evidently, that then Paul wrote some of these answers back in this. And so keep that in mind. These were specific letters to specific churches. All right, number two, uh, understanding the culture in Corinth is crucial in not misapplying this passage or really any passage, but certainly this passage. As you read the Bible, you have to try to put yourself in the mindset of a first century believer. You have to keep in mind that there was this Jewish situation, Gentiles, and they were now coming together into the church and you had all different nations, kindreds, tribes, and tongues being reached with the gospel. And so there was a lot of cultural things to consider, and certainly in the city of Corinth, and I think you see evidence of that 
here in these verses that we read the morning, uh, the, this morning. So why is this study that we're going to do important? Well, if we're a follower of Jesus and we claim to follow the Bible, then we need to be ready to answer some questions that we might receive about our faith based on this passage. And while I would say this, I would say that this situation here doesn't directly apply to us today. For instance, uh, the takeaway today shouldn't be that you go home and start wearing a hat in, in public every single time you're out. There are some applications in principle that we can make from this sermon today, all right? And so with all that said, the goals for today is we want to better understand this passage. We want to understand what Paul was specifically saying in these things. We want to interpret this passage correctly. Was this passage and instruction only for the churches of Corinth, or does it apply to every century and time period down and up into the 21st century? And then are these things in our culture that may not are there things in our culture that may not be specifically spoken about in the Bible, but because of our specific cultural context, we as devoted followers of Christ should be sure to do or not do them? So you're going to see this principle pop up here. That, And again, it continues the theme that Paul's been addressing. He's been talking about the Corinthians' believers, their freedom in Christ. But he's going to address a cultural issue today, and he says, listen, because of the cultural context of this, it's best for you to follow this practice. And I think I've got an illustration that's going to help connect this weird head covering issue with our modern day. So bear with me for just a moment. So the point is, is that we should not derive crazy practices from this passage, but we should better understand how we advance the gospel through whatever culture that God has placed us within. And so we've already mentioned the keys to this understanding. And the reason that it's important to understand this passage is we're going to echo what Peter said. Uh, Peter said, An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in, in them of things in which are some things hard to be understood. So I don't know if Peter was talking about the head-covering instance here that Paul wrote about or not, but Peter alluded to the fact that Paul wrote some difficult things that are sometimes hard to understand. And so the reason it's difficult, one of the reasons it's difficult is because this happened 2,000 years ago. We don't have a video recording of how all this went down. And so that's the challenge. Uh, this happened 2,000 years ago. It's also controversial because it speaks about things that sound strange that many don't do, but yet others actually still seek to do. And it also makes some statements about men and women that have been misconstrued over the centuries when it comes to submission, when it comes to the male and female relationship. So... Let's, we're just going to go through this verse by verse. I have a couple of points here throughout, but let's read this and, and study what the Word says here. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 3, he says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. What biblical principle is Paul reinforcing there? He's reinforcing the principle of biblical submission. He's saying that uh, Christ was, uh, was, was submissive to God the Father, uh, man is submissive to Christ, and the woman is submissive to man. And so, submission. Now, that's not a popular topic in today's society, is it? In fact, there's a lot of things going on in our culture today with all these different movements, and there's a lot of confusion with words. Let me just say this. Bible Christianity is about elevating the true role, value, and respect for womanhood. I love Bible Christianity and what it's all about. It's not meant to abuse women. 
And so there's a lot of baggage tied in with that word submission today. But let me just be clear on this. Our job is not to correct what the Bible says. Our job is to understand, believe, and apply what the Bible says to our lives. Can I get an amen? Hey, we're not up here to try to explain away the submission passages. They're actually right there in the Word of God, and they're very biblical, and we embrace those things. We embrace the fact that God has put down distinctions in role and function within the male and female relationships in our life. And so uh, Paul has spoken about this issue of submission in other places in his writings. Over in the book of Ephesus, he talks about the need for husbands to love their wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. It's funny, whenever I hear a guy go to Ephesians 5 and start quoting about women needing to submit, he never quotes verse 25. Come on. And so men, uh, in, in fact, we're, we're not to, the moment you have to tell your wife to submit is the moment you probably uh, need to evaluate your own leadership because I don't know of any woman alive who if she has a husband who is sacrificially loving her, laying himself down for her as Christ as a church, that she wouldn't want to follow him. So anyway, I'm going to preach to both, both groups here, men and women. So that's an interesting verse. But down in verses 22 and 24, he says, Wives, submit unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Then he says over in Colossians 3, 18 and 19, something very similar. He says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. That's a good verse, especially if you're a house divided. If, you know, if one's an Alabama fan and one's an Auburn fan. Good verse there. Probably need to quote that a lot today. Anyway, so, uh, anyway, so Paul is really starting out this, this discussion about wearing a hat for ladies, alluding to the principle of submission. And I think that's important to keep in mind why. Uh, let me just summarize a couple of things on biblical leadership and biblical uh, marriage and servanthood. Number one, a biblical marriage relationship is not about superiority and inferiority. It's not about the man being the head honcho and, you know, calling the shots, although he is called to lead. But if the focus is ever on superiority and inferiority, you're missing the whole point. Jesus was subservient to God the Father, but he did the work that God the Father sent him to, him to do. It wasn't that he was inferior. I mean, I mean, if you understand the economic doctrine of, uh, the, the doctrine of the economic trinity, then you understand that God is equal in, in these persons, but yet different in the role and function of them. And so a biblical marriage is to reflect that union that God has within the Godhead. And so a biblical marriage relationship is not about superiority and inferiority. Number two, it is about equality in position and in value, yet distinction in role and function. Um, man and woman are equal in value in the sense that Jesus died for both. Um, and they have this great uh, uh, value to God, but yet there's a distinction in role and function. And that's something we must recognize, not only from this passage where Paul's alluding back to uh, the teaching on submission throughout the Bible, but also as we just consider what, what he's about to lay, lay out for us. So verse 3 is key. Verse 3 is really key here as we understand where Paul is going to be going. Look at verse 4. It says, Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. Now what does that mean? Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. Now this is interesting because... If you're 50 years and older in this room, 
in our culture, it's still disrespectful for a man to have his head covered in a building, isn't it? I mean, in our culture. So this is fascinating how this even connects today. And it's not that that's a sin issue, okay? Uh, if, if someone was to walk in and, and they were to have a hat on, we feel compelled to tell them to take their hat off because in our culture, that's a sign of disrespect to have a hat on in a building or to have your hat on during the Pledge of Allegiance or to have your hat on during prayer. In this culture, that wasn't the issue. It wasn't a sign of patriotism or not patriotism. It was actually a sign of... Um, affluence and authority, and it was actually connected to pagan worship practices in that Roman culture. And so here's some statue uh, uh, pictures of Caesar Augustus, and notice that he has his head covered. And so he was a man, and, and he had his head covered. And so Paul is saying here, for you to have your head covered associates you in, in the culture that you're in with this Roman pagan worship practice. So what does the head covering mean for a man? Number one, it meant imitating a Roman pagan worship practice. It meant imitating a Roman pagan worship practice. And number two, communicating affluence and authority. So if a man was to come into the church gathering with his head covered, basically it would be drawing attention to himself as being very affluent, being very superior, being authoritarian like Caesar Augustus. And of course, Caesar Augustus even demanded worship. There was a temple to the emperor as, 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 as well. And so this was associated in that culture with pagan Roman worship practice. Today, if a guy walks into a building with a hat on, it's not associated with pagan worship practice. It's just in our culture, it's a sign of disrespect. Does that make sense? Do you see the distinction, but do you also see how it's a similar issue? So that's what a head covering meant for a man. What did a head covering mean, or what did a, a what an unhevered, an uncovered head meant for a woman. So if you're taking notes here, write these things down. What did an uncovered head then mean for a woman? If, if a covered head for a man meant that he was uh, associating with pagan idol worship practice and that he was trying to draw attention to himself as being affluent and as being an authoritarian figure, what did an uncovered head mean for a woman? Number one, it meant that she was available. It meant that she was single. And if you go home and you research the history, you'll find out that these things I'm about to share with you are true. Uh, this was the association. If a woman had her head uncovered, it meant that she was available. So if you were not married in that culture, your head was uncovered. Now, number two, it meant that more than likely she was immodest. Now, virgins did, single women, did go around with their head uncovered, but there was a sign that they were supposed to give when out in public. L literally, they're supposed to place their hand on their waist. And that was the sign. I know, isn't that funny, Charlie? I mean, uh, so they were supposed to place their hand on their waist. And when they would walk around with their head uncovered, that was the signal that while they were available, they weren't immodest. You might say, this is kooky. This was the culture in that first century. So if she did not have her hand on her waist, as signifying that, yes, she was available, but she was not, if she did not have her hand on her, on her waist, she was saying that it's open season, buddy. And so it also meant that she was more than likely immoral. So for a woman in that culture and time period, not to have her head covered meant that she was probably available, she was more than likely immodest, and she was immoral. Now, how do we bring this forward to the 21st century? Ladies, if you are married and you have a night out on the town with the girls and you know that you're going to a restaurant where you might be seen with other people and you might have a chance to meet some, some people, you know what's very, very wrong? It's for you to take off that wedding ring and to go out on a night on the town with the ladies. You know why? 
what are you saying? You're saying you're available. So it's literally, in our culture, this. This is the same sign as a woman having a head covering in the first century. Not exactly the same, but, but very, very similar. So if you were to take off, ladies, if you were to take off your wedding ring, being married, and you were to go out on a night on the town or, or whatever, you would be saying to the world that you're available, more than likely you're a mod- and that you would be shaming your husband because you're saying by that that you're not proud to be united with your husband in marriage. Isn't that, isn't that fascinating? And so as we study this passage, you're going to see how this comes out, and you're going to see that Paul's going to allude now to a woman's head being shaved and what that meant. So what I want to point out here is that uh, the, the head covering meant something for the man, and the head covering for the woman meant something totally different. And if she didn't have her head covered, this is what was being signified in that culture. And so I just want to remind you of some verses. Uh, the, Paul talks about how that when we are baptized in the Christ, we are freed from the uh, old schoolmaster. We are joined to a new uh, uh, union in Christ. And I love this verse here, uh, verse uh, 28 and 27 and 28. It says, For as many of you have been baptized in the Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What is Paul saying there? He's saying that, listen, the way that male relationships and female relationships worked without Christ has been totally transformed. And really, it's back to the way it should have been in the garden. And so there's a beautiful picture there of the gospel. I don't have time to stop there. I'm already running out of time. But anyway, as you study this, you see that there were cultural implications for a woman not having her head covered. So I've said all that to point out this principle, and this is in your notes, so write this down. We cannot ignore the cultural and social implications of our actions. Ladies, are you totally free to take off your wedding ring? Are you free to do that? Sure, you're free. But by you doing that in our culture, you are saying to our culture that you're available, more than likely you're immodest, and more than likely you're immoral. So why would you want to do that? And that's exactly what Paul is teaching here with the ladies having their head covered in public. Were they free to have their head uncovered? Did that really ultimately mean anything to God? No, but to the culture, it was going to bring confusion. So biblically, there was nothing wrong with a lady having her head covered or uncovered. Biblically, there was nothing wrong with a woman not having her head covered. But culturally and socially, there was an issue. There were implications of those actions that Paul was saying needed to be considered. So were they free to not have their head covered? Sure, but it was going to be a distraction culturally and socially, and it could bring harm to the church and cause questions. Does that make sense? And I think this is important for our young people to hear. So if you're a young person, perk up for just a second. I think when we find this newfound freedom in Christ, we're like, man, I am free. I have new life in Christ, and all things are lawful, but all things are not expedient, and all things edify not, right? And so part of maturing in our faith is realizing that, yeah, I've got a freedom to do this, but it would still say something to the culture that I'm in, and it would be confusing. And that's what Paul is, is teaching here. So let's keep reading here. Verse 5, it says, But every woman that prayeth or prophesied with her head uncovered, and here it is, dishonoreth her head. Dishonoreth, yes, he's speaking about her physical head, but more importantly, he's talking about her head. Who? Her husband. Dishonors her husband. 
for that is even all as if she were shaven. Cover your head. Why? Because of what the culture assumed by her head not being covered. And it was dishonoring to her husband. It was her saying that she's available. Potentially she's immoral. Uh, Women of the temple of Aphrodite walked around with uncovered long flowing hair, which probably meant they were a uh, woman of the night. And so Paul's saying, have your head covered. For if not, it's even as if she might as well have her head shaven. What's he saying there? Let's keep reading. Verse 6. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shaven, shorn, cut it all off. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. So a good clue, this is one of the big clues here in this passage, that the head covering spoke to her her marital and purity status was this verse here. Why why do I say that? In first century Corinth, many historians believed that if a woman was caught in adultery, one of the punishments was that her head was to be shaven. So everyone would know that this woman had been unfaithful. In 20, now catch the difference. In 21st century American culture, if you're out in public and you see a woman with her head shaved, what's the first thing you assume? She's physically sick. She probably has had cancer and she's had chemotherapy. And so for us, when we see a woman with, with, with her head shaved, we have a heart of compassion. We're like, oh, you know, I'm, 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 and, and many times we probably even pray for those people as we see that. That's a sign of sickness. In the first century, a woman's head shaved was a sign of her unfaithfulness and that she had committed adultery. It was a sign of impurity. So do you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying that if you go around with your head uncovered, you might as well have your head shaved because of what you're saying when you have your head uncovered in that culture. Interesting. Verse 7, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head. So he comes back to the man for a moment. And he says, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. Again, why would a man who wears a head covering be dishonoring to God? Because it was a sign of superior authority in that culture, and it was imitating pagan worship practices. But then Paul says, But the woman is the glory of the man. What does that mean? Well, Paul again is referring back to creation here. Look at Genesis 1, verse 27. It says, so God created man in his own image. And so we are to reflect the glory of God. And in the image of God created him, male and female created he them. We know that the woman was taken from man. But isn't this fascinating? That when you get into the order of life after Adam and Eve, man ultimately does come from the woman. And so you see that circle close there. You see that, yes, Adam was created first, then Eve. But Eve is the mother of all living. And Paul's going to allude to that as well here in this passage. So Paul's referring back to the creative order here, and he says, this is how it was, uh, verses 8 and 9 of 1 Corinthians 11, for the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. All right, so what does that mean? Well, again, Paul's alluding back to some verses here, Genesis 2, 20 through 23, and Adam gave names to all the cattle and the fowl of the air and every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helpmate for him, And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And then he said, And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man made he woman and brought her unto the man and said, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Paul again here is just alluding to the creative order. And he's saying, Listen, ladies, 
you are bringing shame to your head, to your husband, when you do not uh, take part in this cultural practice. Verse 10, 1 Corinthians 11. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. What in the world does that mean? The woman should have a head covering because of the angels? I don't fully understand what this means. I'm going to give you to you two ideas. Number one, this was showing, her submission was showing how the angels also submit to God and to the creative order. But also many scholars believe that when the church gathers and worships, there literally are angels in their company. And so those are the two potential explanations for that verse. It's a very fascinating verse to think about. But uh, yeah, for this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Verse 11 and 12. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man and the Lord. So there he says it. He says, listen, there is a creative order, but you're not to use that to lord over your spouse. So he says, nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman. The, woman, the, the man's dependent upon the woman, but neither the woman without the man and the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things, are, but all things of God. So what was Paul saying here in this passage? Well, he wasn't speaking on how, you know, Christians now have this permission to be sexist. That's not what Paul was talking about. Paul was not being sexist, but he was being culturally revolutionary. He was addressing this issue in the culture, and he was saying, listen, not only is this a head-covering issue for you guys, but think about the bigger picture here. You're portraying your relationship with God and your relationship with one another in this creative order that God has laid down. And so in the Roman world, women were not significant. In fact, they were used and abused. In the Roman world, and really for most of human history, until biblical Christianity really took root in the world. And, I'm gonna, and this is one of the great apologetic of the Christian faith. And that is, is that what Paul was really doing here, do you see it? Paul was really protecting the great value of women. He was protecting them. Because in the Roman world, women weren't significant. They were just there to be used and abused. They were not valued. They were not honored. Women could be, could be disposed of at will. A veiled woman in the first century was not about inferiority. In fact, it was about great value and security. It was saying that the woman is set apart. This woman is literally under a covering. She is protected. This woman is off limits. This woman is, has dignity. This woman has identity. This woman is pure. An unveiled woman in the first century said she's fair game, and most likely she is impure. This was not a sexist issue, and people who come to the Word in, in, in the 21st century without understanding the culture and context try to impose that Paul was trying to be sexist in this passage. That's not what he was doing at all. The problem you have is C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, we all tend to suffer from chronological snobbery. What is that? We tend to think that how we think or do things is right in the best way, and that other cultures and time periods did it wrong, and that they weren't as sophisticated as us. After all, we have the iPhone. <laughs> but the problem with this is that we are unaware of our own cultural and chronological blindness. 
So when Paul instructed the women at Corinth to wear a head covering, it was not in any way belittling or devaluing women. It was actually, catch it, raising the bar for how women were to be treated and valued in that culture. It was protecting them. And this is what true Bible Christianity has always been about, about elevating the role and the identity of womanhood, valuing it and protecting it. And I'm thankful that if you study it out, you find any culture that has been touched with true Bible Christianity, you'll find that the status of women was elevated, was raised. I mean, look at it even in our own country of 250 years. Women now have rights and opportunities that they never had at any other time in human history. You want to know why? Because this country was founded on what? Bible Christianity, folks. And so this is what Paul's addressing here. And so Paul then goes through verses 13 through 16, and and what does he say? What is the support now for why women should be involved in this practice in this culture? What is the support for his teaching? Well, look at verse 13. I love it. Judging yourselves... Is it best, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? I really think what he's doing here is he's arguing from common sense with a rhetorical question. He's saying, you decide, but this is common sense. This is is clearly saying something in this culture. So he's using common sense. Number two, he's using the cultural meaning, verses 14 and 15. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. Now, this is an interesting one because then the question becomes, well, how long is long, you know? And, is, and, and what does the word nature here mean? If you study the context, the word nature here means, again, he's talking about the culture and what's going on here. In fact, in this culture, if you study the history, many men with long hair were identified as not having natural affection, if that makes sense. And so Paul was saying here that it's a shame for you, Corinthian men, to have long hair. Of course, how long, is, how, how, how long is long? Because it was associated with a certain form of pleasure-seeking in the first century. So again, he's, 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 he's coming back to cultural meaning here. So he's saying long hair, uh, clean shit. You know, for us, as we look at the cultural meaning, and this is where I wanted to apply it, is there anything wrong with not wearing a suit to a job interview. No, there's, there's not a sin issue there. But if you want the job, what are you going to do? You'll probably dress up. You're going to probably wear a suit. Is there anything, and, 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 and here's another hot-button issue in a lot of Christian circles, tattoos. Are tattoos sin in and of themselves? Well, some can debate that, okay? But if you go to a job interview and you have tattoos, I have heard people share with me personal testimony that they think that one of the reasons they haven't gotten a job is because of their tattoos. And so cultural meaning has a lot to play into this where whether it's uh, you know, being clean-shaven, wearing a suit, uh, tattoos, um, dress. You know, can you wear your pajamas to church or to uh, work at a church? Sure, but is it the best idea? No. Again, cultural uh, confusion, uh, being a distraction, all these things play in, which is, I think is fascinating because when it comes to matters in our culture, it's not that these things are questions of morality, but they are a question of culture and clarity and not wanting to be a distraction to the main issue. And that's what Paul was addressing. So he says here, so, but then here's what's interesting. In this passage, he alludes to the creative order But then he actually ends the passage with church practice. And this is important as you 
understand the word and as you rightly apply it to our life. Notice what he says in verse 16. He says, but if any man seem to be contentious, he's saying, listen, if this is going to be a fighting issue, if y'all going to go to war on how big does the hat have to be or how long does it cover it, if it's going to be contentious, notice what he says. We have no such custom, neither the churches of God. So this is not a moral issue. This is not a timeless principle. This was to the city and the churches of Corinth. And Paul is very clear there at the very end. He says, listen, you need to practice this because here's your culture and here's how it can be very confusing to your culture. But if it's going to be a contentious issue, because the church of Corinth was known for getting along so well, not. If it's going to be a contentious issue, then we don't have this practice. Neither do the churches of God. So, should a woman wear a hat today? If you want to. Should a woman, if she is married, gladly wear her wedding ring telling people that she is taken? Absolutely. Is she free to take it off? Sure. But she's going to be saying something by taking it off. And the same goes for the man too, by the way. Sorry, I focus on the lady because that was the focus here in this passage. Men. Hey, men. We don't go on business trips, do we, and take that ring off, do we? better not. God loves you so much that he doesn't want you to ruin your life. God loves you so much and he loves your wife so much, he wants you to respect and honor, take care of her. And so we see this support for Paul's teaching. So, look at these photos. You have the Amish, you have the Mennonites, you have some of the primitive Pentecostals wearing their head coverings. And hey, can they wear them? Sure they can. Here's the difference. Because you don't wear it doesn't mean you're farther away from God doesn't mean that you're immoral, doesn't mean that you're immodest. There's a lot of other things in our culture that would speak to those things. And so you see that some uh, people practice this. So what do we do with it? Well, I think Paul's been very clear here what we do with it. But what are some applications? So, so if we're not going to practice head covering specifically, because this was for the Corinthian culture, we can see how Paul was addressing a cultural issue here. And he says at the end, listen, if it's going to be contentious, we don't have this practice. Neither do the churches of God. So what are the applications we can draw? Number one, there are distinctions between men and women. Don't blur those lines. I think that's very clear here in this passage. In general, there are distinctions between men and women, and we should not be seeking to blur those lines. Number two, projecting sexual promiscuity in dress or action does not honor God or your husband, ladies. I'd say the same thing for men. Of course, it's a little bit different for men in the sense that men and women are... Um, as far as how they're attracted to one another. But ladies specifically, projecting sexual promiscuity in areas of dress or action does not honor God or your husband. And if you're single, it doesn't honor your future husband. Amen? Or oh me. Amen. God wants you to be protected. So those are some general applications. What are some specific ones? Here you go. I want to jot some of these down. Cross-dressing blurs gender lines. You might say, how did you get caught? Well, Paul's talking about dress here. And you know what? This has blurred gender lines today, and all it is is a bigger attack on the family. Do you see that? Do you see how the enemy has tried from the very beginning in the garden to put man and woman at odds with each other? And do you see how the gospel rescues that relationship? Galatians 3, ah, oh, there's neither male nor female, but, one or, but, but all are one in Christ. 
So cross-dressing blurs gender lines. Number two, transgender issues blur gender lines. And we know that that's a very current issue we're facing in our culture today. Avoid dressing in ways that appear sexually provocative. Ladies, you know how we should dress? We should dress in a way that draws attention to our beautiful faces and to our Mary Kay complexion, right? You know what, ladies? Uh, we, we, we all have a responsibility, but specifically, um, we all, all of us need to, uh, to avoid dressing in this way. But, but, of course, again, the application here with women today. Um, wives, let your behavior and dress honor God and your husband. And I don't think that God's saying you should go around in baggy sweatpants. You know what I'm saying? I, I think you can address in fashion. But keep in mind that, that this is an area where you can be a distraction. That's just the reality. And so, again, is it right or wrong for you to wear this or that? The question isn't what's right or wrong necessarily, but what's best? What's the best thing? Is this going to be a distraction to someone else? And sometimes, because of church life and, and just culture, that, that can be a messy thing to navigate through and figure out, okay, what is best? And that's where you need to lean into counselors that will help you. So isn't it fascinating? Paul was addressing this issue, and yet, in a lot of ways, this does apply to us today as we think about the gospel and living it out. And then husbands, love and lead your family well. Love and lead your family well. So is it cultural or timeless? Is this passage cultural or timeless? I would argue this was a cultural issue that Paul was addressing, but yet we can pull timeless application from it, which I just gave you. So here's two questions. This is something you might want to discuss in your growth group later uh, this morning or this week as you meet. But the biggest thing for you to decipher in the Bible is, is God addressing a cultural issue for that one time period, or is it a timeless thing that we're to practice down through the ages? Uh, so here's some questions. Number one, is the basis and support of the command grounded in creation and who God is, or is it grounded in a cultural issue? God used some, some things about creation today, but where did he end the passage? He ended on the cultural practice and said, if it's going to be contentious, we don't have this practice. All right? Number two, is it a repeated application or found only once in the Bible? How many times is this head covering issue found in the Bible? One time. So, whenever you read something and it's only found once in the Bible, cause for pause. Is the issue of submission found once in the Bible? No, it's found many times throughout God's Word. Do you see the difference? Head covering, cultural. Submission in relationships, timeless. Now, write down this passage, 1 Timothy, excuse me, uh, yeah, 1 Timothy 2, verses 12 through 14. Study that, and you tell me, come back to me this week, text me, let me know what you think, as you study the Word, and as you rightly divide it, is Paul addressing a cultural issue, or is he addressing a timeless issue? And how will you be able to discern the difference? And so we'll study that sometime. But that's an Easter egg. I'm not going to get into it today because we're out of time. So Paul gives this principle. He gives an application of the principle. And then he gives support for that application. And he says that the support for this issue of head coverings for women was cultural. So what do we do with all this? <laughs> well, we don't go out and buy stock in head coverings or hats. But we do glean the principles from this today, and that is that God wants us to honor the relationships that we have in our life. 
And so while the head covering issue isn't an issue for us today, I have touched upon cultural issues that we face and how God calls us to do the expedient thing, to do the loving thing, to bring glory and honor to Christ and not attention to ourselves. The greatest joy in life is to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's really the mission of our life. Live the gospel, we're going to die one day. And then you know what? In time, we'll be forgotten, but not by God. 